Welcome to the 408th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is February 3rd, 2022. Today, I welcome economist Jason Abeluk to discuss his research on mask wearing and COVID-19. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Former Allegheny County Controller Mark Patrick Flaherty Dies of COVID-19 Complications. This appeared in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette by Janice Crompton. January 5th, 2022. Former Allegheny County Controller Mark Patrick Flaherty has died of complications from COVID-19. According to his sister, Mary Flaherty, Mr. Flaherty, age 57, died at UPMC St. Margaret's Hospital, where he was being treated since December 28th for blood clots and respiratory issues related to COVID-19. Mark passed away very peacefully, sedated, and in no pain, Miss Flaherty wrote on her Facebook page. He was surrounded by his clan, his beautiful wife, Anne, his loving daughter, Dee Dee, brother, Michael, and Angel Laurel, and our cousins, Dr. Patrick Smith, Danny Smith, and Matthew Smith. A native of Mount Lebanon, Mr. Flaherty, a Democrat, was a lawyer and served as county controller from 2003 to 2011, before running unsuccessfully for a seat on the county Common Pleas Court last year. Colleagues and friends, including County Treasurer John K. Weinstein and State Representative Dan Miller, remembered Mr. Flaherty for his contributions to the community. Mr. Flaherty left an indelible mark on Allegheny County, Mr. Weinstein said in a statement. He accomplished that which we should all aspire to. He leaves his community a better place thanks to his unwavering dedication and extraordinary kindness. It was a great honor to serve alongside him for eight years during his time as county controller, where he fought tirelessly for our taxpayers. It will forever be a tremendous gift to know him as a friend. My deepest sympathies go to his beautiful family in this time of tragic loss. Mark and his extended family have been part of the fabric of our community for decades, Mr. Miller, Democrat from Mount Lebanon, said in a statement. He made time for people, including me, when I first moved here almost 20 years ago. We became good friends. He was a family man who enjoyed sports and watching his daughter excel. I will leave it to his family to more properly comment, he said, and memorialize Mark, but I will miss him deeply, and I thank him not only for his public service, but for encouraging others to serve as well. Godspeed, Mark, and God bless his family during this difficult time. Story was a former Allegheny County controller, Mark Patrick Flaherty, dies of COVID-19 complications. 
Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and let me introduce my guest to you. Dr. Jason Abeluk is a professor of economics in the Yale University School of Management. His work lies at the intersection of public finance, behavioral economics, health economics, and industrial organization. His research focuses on the detection of mistakes in the design of institutions when consumers or providers make mistakes in contexts such as healthcare, health plan choice, dietary choice, or the provision of medical care. Jason Abeluk, thanks for coming on COVID Calls today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I should clarify first for anyone who is who is watching as opposed to just listening that my apartment is not nearly as nice as the <laughs> virtual background you see here. This was just one of the defaults that we could uh, use on the streaming. It's a beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I was feeling so jealous when you, and I'm glad you said that. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> but do you play piano? Um, I played piano when I was in high school. I actually, I actually <laughs> have not played for a long time. Yeah, that, it's a good background. Thank you for that clarification, Jason. Yeah. Um, I like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm calling from New Haven, Connecticut, where I live. Um, I think the pandemic situation is, on the one hand, much better than it was a week or two ago. I think uh, there was a huge spike of cases due to Omicron. I think that spike is now receding. So in terms of the case level, I think it's still pretty high relative to what we've historically seen. Although I think, as is uh, the case in most places, I think that the death rate has been substantially lower and is now is now falling dramatically. And what about mask wearing in New Haven? What do you see? Yeah, um, I think that, so first of all, I work at Yale at the university. So at Yale, there's extremely high compliance with mask wearing indoors. Um, in New Haven, more generally, uh, I would say when you go to, uh, so most of the other places I end up, so if you look at like a restaurant indoors, then you know, people wear masks and they walk in and then take them off to eat, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, outdoors, my view is that mask wearing is actually <laughs> maybe not even that important. And, you know, I think you see a mix of people wearing and not wearing masks. So I've been asking guests if they would share a personal memory of of this time. And for most people, it's a tough assignment because it's a density of COVID memories. But I, I'd like to throw the question to you, Jason, something that, you know, really sticks in your memory of this COVID period for you. Yeah. So um, first, I should say that uh, I hope I'm not spoiling too much that I, you had sent me some of these questions beforehand, and I looked at them. And my first reaction to that question was actually, look, my life personally has actually not been all that different due to COVID. It's like I travel a little bit less. I have, you know, I, I cut down on the number of different people that I that I play table tennis with and things of that nature. But my my other thought was that look, I think my my general view of public policy is that actually personal experience is a really poor basis on which to evaluate public policy in the following sense. Like and I think on both sides of this issue, like if one tries to think about, oh, what is the harm done by lockdowns, it would be a really, uh, a really big mistake to think, oh, well, you know, it doesn't affect me very much because I like to sit in my apartment or whatever. And likewise, it would be a really big mistake to think, oh, well, you know, I had, like, I, I have not personally had COVID, but, you know, such and such had COVID and, you know, they were sick for a few days and then they got better. And therefore, this isn't a big deal because, of course, if something kills 1% of people, most people, 
uh, won't be, uh, won't end up dying as a result or won't even, might not even have serious complications, but that doesn't mean that it's not a major issue for public health. Right. Well, thanks for that. And, um, I, I've discovered you because of some, uh, publications, particularly from an op-ed, and, and we're going to hear about the research that underlies it. The piece appeared in the New York Times. Um, the title was, We Did the Research, Masks Work, and You Should Choose a High-Quality Mask If Possible. This appeared in September of last year with co-authors Laura H. Kwong and Stephen P. Luby. So I want to dive into every aspect of this, and you and I were chatting just before um, we came on. Um, sometimes you know, I discover something and then a couple months later, COVID has taken a different turn. It's always relevant, um, but it might not be sort of at the top of the news. This is a topic that has continued to be of maximum sort of personal and policy importance even since September. So let's dive into it. Tell me a little bit about the op-ed, why you wrote it, and the work that underlies it. Yeah, exactly. So I think um, I, I'm not even sure where to start. So, I mean, my interest in this topic really um, started in March of 2020, I think, when we learned that, you know, there was this infectious disease. It seemed like there was community spread uh, in the United States and would be basically everywhere in the world, um, a respiratory disease. And this question arose, oh, should people uh, wear masks in order to stop the spread of this disease? So, um, uh, so... Maybe before I recount the whole history of this, I'll just tell you what we're talking about here, which is that we ended up doing this very large randomized controlled trial in Bangladesh with 600 villages, um, over 300,000 people involved, where we distributed millions of masks. So there were 300 control villages where we did nothing. There were 300 randomly chosen treatment villages where we did a very intensive in intervention to try to increase mask wearing that consisted of distribution of masks. It consisted of uh, providing information about why mask wearing is important, uh, working with local leaders to try to promote mask wearing, as well as what we call in-person reinforcement. So in crowded public areas, such as mosques, for example, we would actually have people, uh, local people go and say, hey, if you're not wearing masks, please put on a mask. And so as a result of this, mask wearing increased by about 30 percentage points in treatment villages relative to the control villages. Um, and then the main purpose of this intervention was to assess what is the impact on uh, COVID and specifically symptomatic uh, SARS-CoV-2 infections. And the bottom line seemed to be that we increased mask use by about 30 percentage points and the number of COVID infections fell by about 10%. So we can talk about how to interpret the magnitude and what all of this means, but it seemed like, yes, Based on a randomized trial, masks were effective at combating. That's a really significant finding. And I guess I'd like to know, for, I mean, first of all, just sort of landscape level, how did you decide that it's a huge scale of a study? I mean, how did you yeah. decide to do it in Bangladesh? Okay. So let me, and let me take both. Let me also comment on the other thing you mentioned, which is why did we do the huge scale? So first, we decided to do it in Bangladesh. I think there's three main reasons. First, because it's a big and densely populated country. At the time we were uh, planning this experiment, there were no vaccines available, and we knew that even if vaccines did become available, they would take a long time to roll out in Bangladesh. So it was, there was just substantial uh, mortality risk, and we felt we should think about what policies we can we can do to reduce the mortality burden. Um, the second reason 
that uh, Bangladesh was, especially through the mobiles, we had done some surveys uh, prior to starting our intervention where we found it was actually somewhat interesting. In April of 2020, we did some surveys where the government first uh, pushed for mask use. And we found that a lot of people seemed to be wearing masks, both um, they self-reported wearing masks and anecdotally, if you walked around, they were wearing masks. That number seemed to drop pretty precipitously from April to May to June. I think we did another survey in June where we found that mask wearing was around 20%. Um, in the control group of our experiment, it was about 11%. So it was certainly uh, falling pretty quickly, uh, pretty quickly over time. Uh, the third reason we chose Bangladesh was just because we had good institutional partners there. So we worked with several different partners in this experiment. The most notable is an organization called IPA, Innovations for Poverty Action, that basically we had to employ hundreds of people throughout Bangladesh to implement an experiment of this nature. So it was important to have, you know, very competent local partners who could who could execute an experiment like this. Now, just context-wise, because I have not, ha I've had several guests to talk about India, um, but uh, only intermittently have we talked about Bangladesh. Yeah. The course of the pandemic there is, was quite different from the way it unrolled in the United States. I mean, as I understand it, and, and I don't know if Bangladesh, the Bangladesh experience was the same as India. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because I'm curious yeah. how that also might affect, um, you know, mask wearing behaviors. Yeah. So one thing is it's oh, the first point is it's just hard to tell because Bangladesh has poor quality data. Mm. So you're sort of putting some puzzle pieces together. Whereas it's not quite the same as like in the United States, where we think we have a pretty good accounting of, you know, at least how many cases there were and how many deaths from COVID there were. In Bangladesh, it's much sparser and more incomplete data. Um, my overall assessment is that the fatality rate was probably somewhat lower, um, certainly than in the United States and then in many other Western countries. It's not entirely clear why this is. Um, one of the biggest factors is likely just that the population is a little bit younger on average. Um, so, but nonetheless, I think the foot, so despite the lower fatality rate, it was still like a substantial public health crisis during certain periods, including the period of our intervention, where, you know, especially their healthcare system has less capacity than many Western countries, including the United States. So it was the kind of thing where there's really quite a lot of value from uh, from preventing cases from occurring and preventing the healthcare system from becoming overloaded. And you know, what kind of baselines do you have to work with in a study like this in terms of understanding public behavior? I mean, working with media sources, I mean, governmental, um, yeah. you know, public health sources, how do you get a sense of people's underlying, you know, feeling about mask wearing, for example, coming yeah. into a study like this? Well, very interesting question. The main way we did this was to conduct our own surveys, and we conducted two different types of surveys. We conducted surveys where we asked people, are you wearing masks? Do you have masks? And then we conducted surveys where we went out and observed people. And one of the findings from that, which mirrors something that's been found elsewhere in the world, in the United States, in Kenya, and many other countries, is that it turns out people's self-reported mask wearing behavior is totally different from what you observe. So if you survey people and ask, hey, are you wearing masks in public areas? Something like, I, I think around the time of our studies, like 80% of people said that they were, and you know it was far, far lower in the teens or 20% going into our study and then even lower during our study. So it's certainly the kind of thing, and this is something that we generally find in social science, that if you ask people about a behavior that is sort of, uh, that there's a social norm that they're supposed to do it, 
they vastly overstate the degree to which they do it. So we knew that self-reported mass brain behavior um, would overstate observed. So we went out and directly observed a bunch of people, and that suggested that not a lot of people were actually wearing masks, even in crowded public areas, including indoor public areas um, like mosques. This actually, by the way, so this is a good segue back to where I started, where I was talking about in in March 2020, there was this funny feature that, you know, there were a lot of public health agencies that were really opposed to universal mask wearing at the at the start of the pandemic. And so the question is, why was that? And I think it actually connects to what I was just saying about this issue about the difficulty of measuring mask wearing behavior. Because if you looked at the existing literature, um, basically prior to COVID, looking at influenza, for example, and there were some experiments that people had done. There were two types of experiments, experiments in hospitals where they tried to say, hey, if we give people masks, does it reduce the likelihood of getting influenza? And in hospitals, they generally found yes. Now, typically they weren't testing like a mask versus no mask in hospitals because you can't have like a, um, a surgeon not be wearing or someone interacting with influenza patients. They have to wear a mask. So it's like, oh, well, what they would typically test is different quality masks, and they would find, you know, N95 masks maybe work better than um, cloth masks, things of that nature, mm-hmm. right? Then there were experiments in communities where they would go, for example, like college campuses, and they would say, hey, during this influenza outbreak, let's try to encourage people to wear masks, and then let's mm-hmm. see if they have less influenza. Now, those studies typically showed little effect. There was maybe one exception, a study that combined mask wearing and hand washing where they found some effect, but typically they found there was no effect of masks. And so I think the consensus at this time was like, hey, we did all these randomized studies and, and we didn't find an effect of mask wearing on influenza. But there was really a huge problem with all of these community studies in contrast to the hospital studies where you could see the doctor wearing a mask, which is they had no direct way of measuring who complied. So they would go to like a college campus and they would right. say, hey, it's an influenza outbreak. Um, by the way, uh, you're in the treatment group of the study. Can you please wear a mask? Now, think about the challenge we have today with people wearing masks. And now imagine that, like, you're a college student you're in the, and someone tells you, hey, can you please go out and wear a mask? And nobody's wearing a mask. You're like, wow, I'm going to look pretty weird if I go and wear a mask. You would think that, you know, probably not all of them are going to comply, right? And what these studies relied on was self-reported mask wearing to measure whether people wore masks. So they'd be like, oh, yeah, a bunch of people in the treatment group said they wore masks and we don't see them as less likely to get influenza. But who knows if they actually wore a mask, right? right. And there was a similar issue in actually there was a study in Denmark uh, that preceded ours during the, the COVID epidemic where, um, first of all, I think they were massively underpowered. So their point estimate was actually a lot of people quote this study and they're like, well, masks don't work. The point estimate of the study was an 18% reduction in uh, COVID in the treatment group. So it was statistically insignificant because they were underpowered because they didn't have a big enough sample. But so right. if you take the point estimate literally, you'd be like, wow, there was this big reduction in COVID. Yeah. But the other major issue of the study is they couldn't tell who wore masks. So a big part of our study is we're not just giving people masks, we're going out and we're measuring in these public areas, we're observing directly who is wearing the mask so that we can see whether there's an increase in mask use and ask what is the impact on let, let me just pause there for just one. Is that because those studies hadn't fully taken on board this sort of social science finding about reporting versus behavior? Or is it an issue uh, that they just didn't have the kinds of resources to do that sort of further yeah. dimension of 
of the study. I'm sort of curious because it seems you're also indicating a, a really important sort of psychosocial finding about the way that people behave in a disease situation with mandates or suggestions from public health authorities. Yeah. So first of all, we'd have to ask that question a study by study basis. I mean, any study is complex to do and to coordinate. So it's like, of course, if you're, if you imagine the kind of study we're talking about where, you know, they have a few hundred people on a college campus and they try to get the people to treatment to wear masks, it's probably just not even feasible. Like how would they, they would have to hire people to like follow the individuals in the treatment group around. Sounds like a reality. Bad reality TV programming. <laughs> yeah. So that is another critical difference, actually, in, between our study and the previous study is the, the question of at what level are you randomizing? So we are randomizing at the community level, at the level of villages, not at the level of individuals. So there's a couple things that that's very important for. First, you know, it makes surveillance easier because you don't need to follow specific individuals. You just need to say, Hey, how many people are wearing masks in public areas in these, in these villages? Okay. Second, it means that we're conceptually asking a somewhat different question. Because if you randomize individuals to wear a mask, you're asking, does a mask prevent an individual from having a symptomatic infection? Okay. If you randomize communities to wear masks, you're not just assessing whether masks prevent infections. You're assessing whether masks, they might also prevent an infected person from transmitting the infection to other people. So they do both source control as well as protection. Our study design captures both of those effects because it's saying, hey, people in the village wear masks more. Maybe you have less COVID because people were protected from infections. Maybe you have less COVID because infected people transmitted it less. If you randomize the individual level, you can only ever measure the effect of masks on protection. You can never measure the effect of masks in preventing people from transmitting because, sure, you might be preventing the people in the treatment group from transmitting to other people, but those people could be in the treatment and control group or not in your study. So it doesn't. That's really interesting detail and sort of taps into sort of broader set of challenges in public health communication with COVID, which has been about whether or not you should aim advice at individuals because that will be the primary motivator. Or do you aim advice at, you're still aiming it at individuals, but you're aiming them maybe at an individual within a community and they're understanding their behavior, not only as protecting themselves, but also protecting their neighbors. It's a, it's a, it seems like a subtle difference on the surface, but when you yeah. dive into it, it's like, actually, this turns out to be hugely important, particularly in an individualistic yeah. country like the United States. Okay. So, so first of all, we just thought, I, I certainly think that that difference in the underlying biological mechanism is important. Now, in our experiment, another thing that we did, we had a number of what we call cross-randomizations, where in some villages, we varied the type of messaging we did. In some villages, we actually emphasized more self-protection. In some villages, we emphasized more altruism we found no difference in terms of mastery. Now, of course, it's sort of, it's somewhat context and implementation dependent, right? Like you could overgeneralize from this and be like, oh, we know the answer. Of course, we don't know the answer in every setting. And it's like, you know, if you chose slightly different words for altruism or self-protection, it, it, it might yield a different thing. But it's somewhat interesting. You know, we tried one implementation of this and hmm. it didn't make much of a difference from mask wearing. Like we basically tried, we tried tons and tons of different things to get people to wear masks. and my takeaway is the biggest thing that really, really makes a difference is if you have someone asking people in crowded public areas, hey, please put on a mask. <laughs> if you do that, um, including, by the way, both at the time when that person is there and then at other times when they're not no longer there. It's basically like, oh, you know, you'll have people in like markets and mosques. 
One day there's a person there going around. If they see someone not wearing a mask, they say, please put on a mask. But then a couple of days later, people are way more likely to wear masks. And even after our intervention ended, we see persistent increases in uh, mask use. So it's the kind of thing where, yeah, having sort of the possibility that someone might ask you to wear a mask really in concert with all the other things we did seems to create a norm where people begin to think they're supposed to wear masks. Now, another point I should emphasize, by the way, is it's not like we had at the end of this experiment 100% of people wearing masks, right? Mask wearing, I said it increased by 30 percentage points. It increased from about 10% to about 40%, right? So in most, um, now that sort of mass, a lot of heterogeneity across villages, it's part of it is like, some villages you saw a small increase and some villages you saw a really big increase. The average mm. was 30 percentage points. Um, but it's certainly the case that it's not like we suddenly got everyone to wear masks using these methods. And of course, that partly just highlights, you know, a village is a big place. Most of the time, uh, like I'm saying, we did this in-person reinforcement, but it's not like, it's not like every minute if I go outside and I go into a building, someone's like, put on a mask, put on a mask. It's like, well, you know, maybe there's a, one in 20 chance that you go into the mosque and there's a person that day who's asking you to put on a mask. But nonetheless, that leads to a large increase in the population level, although it doesn't get you to 100. No, but the the finding, again, you said it's a 10% reduction in deaths for right. a 30%. No, 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 sorry, sorry, sorry. It's a 10% reduction in uh, symptomatic infection so how okay. do we let's talk about how we measure that for a second yeah, then, so yeah. we can't we're, we're not even close we didn't even measure deaths because we wouldn't even be close to being powered for that um the reason is that so why did we do an experiment at this scale first of all because you know we do power calculations and you do power calculations and here's the issue with COVID. and i'm going to make a very important and general point first and then then we'll, we'll get into the details about, about how we did the measure which is right. a lot of people like to be like oh Let's compare Sweden and the United States. So they're like, let's compare within the United States, like, let's compare Texas to New York, or let's compare South Korea to the United States. And what can we learn? And there's a big fundamental problem with that, which is that we know that COVID is like, is a high variance disease. Okay. What do I mean when I say it's high variance? I mean that like, there's a bunch of random things like super spreader events or whatever that cause COVID to really take off in some places and to take off less than others. So if you look at any two places, just by chance, you know, if you're, some places are going to have really serious outbreaks, some places are going to have less serious outbreaks. You can't compare two places. If we had done our experiment in two village, villages, it would have been meaningless. So we know how variable COVID is likely to be across villages due to random chance. So we were like, how many villages do we need in order to measure an impact? And the answer there turned out to be that Given the outcome, which was symptomatic infections, in other words, someone has symptoms and then we test their blood and we see if they have COVID, we needed about 600 villages, about 350,000 people in order to be able to detect effects similar to the magnitude that we document. Okay. And I think that's generally true. So be very suspicious of studies that you see if they're comparing two places or something like that. Like it's, it's more common in news articles even than studies, but, but the way to learn about COVID is not take two places. It's, you know, first take 600 places. And even if you have a lot of places, you have a second research problem of design that economists call design, which is, well, you have to separate correlation and causation. And that's what a randomized experiment does. It tells you, yes, it really is. The differences you're seeing really are about the mask intervention. 
and not about, you know, well, the places that got masks, everyone was being more careful or something like that. Right. And, and still, you, you, uh, it's kind of, it's fascinating to talk about the variability in the different, in the different villages. And I'm, I'm sure that must have been interesting to you, even if you couldn't follow up with it in, in detail. Yeah. I mean, do you have any, any hunches about those kinds of variabilities or it's not yeah, something you can track down? So, okay, so let's talk about two sorts of variability. One is the variability in mask wearing, and the second is like the variability in COVID. Mm-hmm. So the variability in COVID, like, I think we know that's going to happen just because, you know, sometimes you get a super spreader event, sometimes you don't, who knows, right? Like there's a million unobservable things that could be accounted for. The variability in mask wearing, I have some suspicions about the kinds of things that are going on, like, and, you know, we actually, during the, during the intervention itself, we did things where it's like, okay, we had the first wave of the intervention. Then we followed up in the villages where things didn't work well. And we tried to figure out what went wrong. Can we make the intervention more, more effective in later ones? Right. And the kinds of things that we uncovered were often, it's like, okay, you know, we had talked to such and such village leader and they said that they were happy about the intervention, but we didn't really push them hard enough to help. And it's like, and we, or we found like the wrong leader. It's like we found someone who's a political leader, but they don't, they're not really influential with the populace or whatever. And we needed to find someone who's the informal leader. And it's sort of like finding the people who are influential with different demographic groups and then getting their buy-in and getting them to actually do things. That kind of thing that actually we think um, was more effective in some villages than others in promoting mass work. Just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with the economist Jason Abeluk about mask wearing, and we've been talking in detail about this really phenomenal study that he and his team were doing uh, in Bangladesh. And, uh, and thanks for going into such detail about it. And I want to talk about, well, I want to return to one thing we were, um, you were laying some groundwork before, which is the behavior in the United States early in the mm-hmm. pandemic around masks. And you were sort of laying the groundwork for us understanding the the data that preceded that about mask wearing that might have been influencing CDC's advice. Yeah. I'm not sure if you can draw you're drawing a direct line between those studies and the way CDC developed its advice early in in the pandemic. Yeah. And I would flesh that out a little bit more. So there was sort of these initial studies which made the public health community I would say like ambivalent. Like they were sort of like, oh, right. you know, there was also a second concern which was that um Mask wearing would cause people to be, to engage in other risky behaviors, to engage in what's called risk compensation. Um, so one of the things we wanted to measure in our study was what's the impact? You do this intervention. Do people physically distance more or less? Do people socially distance more or less? So what I mean by that is social distance is like, do you go to a place? Physical distancing is like, how far apart do people stand? What we actually found was in the treatment villages of our study, we found no change in social distancing, no change in like the counts of people in crowded public areas. We found a small increase in physical distancing. People actually stood a little bit further apart um, in the in the treatment regions. Um, now, this actually raised the question. So is the impact of the mask intervention because of the direct filtration effect of masks 
Or is it because the intervention by wearing masks, people stood further apart? Now, let me first note, either way, it's the effect of masks. But it's certainly interesting to know, is it that is it working because when people wear masks, they stand further apart? Or is it working because you know masks are directly blocking the particle? There's some circumstantial evidence to suggest that it's the latter, that it's the masks are directly blocking particles, which is that um, when we look across villages and we ask, where do we see the biggest declines in COVID? And we compare that to the increases in mask wearing and the changes in physical distancing. We see the biggest declines in COVID in the places where people actually wore masks more, regardless of the change in physical distancing. So the change in physical distancing wasn't observationally related to the declines in COVID. Now, I can give you some caveats for that analysis, but the bottom line is I think it's suggestive that the effect is really due to the filtration effect of the mask and not just that when people wear masks, they stand a little further. So in, in terms of uh, you know, trying to understand then behavior in, in the United States. I mean, there's another thing that was raised early on in the pandemic is that um, the public shouldn't be told to wear masks because there will be, but so then it becomes a sort of a supply chain problem. Everyone's going to go out, rush out, buy a mask, and then hospitals yeah. won't be able to buy masks. And it very quickly, some the complexities that you've just been discussing, I think they were probably, I'm sure they were discussed among you know people in, in um, public health settings. Um, yeah. But the media didn't really touch that much. And it was much more about, oh, do we have them? Do we not have them? Well, we better just hold off and the healthcare providers need them. And I don't remember a lot of nuance in the public discussion in that early phase of the pandemic. Yeah. You were watching more closely than I was. Certainly. Yeah, and, and I was very much involved in this where, you know, I tried to, went to like the Yale COVID committee was like, hey, we should, in March 2020, we should tell everyone to to wear masks. We have this respiratory disease. And I've looked at these existing trials and they're really underpowered. And if you look at the, um, at the time, I actually wrote a paper in that um, in March of 2020 that was basically making the point that it's like, oh, but you know, if you look at other circumstantial evidence, it does suggest that masks are effective. Like, for example, looking across countries, different things. Um, but uh, and so I tried to convince people, and they had exactly the two concerns they had were one, the concern about risk compensation, and second, the concern about people basically trying to hoard masks. Um, so in the our initial policy recommendation back in March 2020, been like, okay, look. At the very least, we should be recommending that people like wear cloth masks because those aren't worn in hospitals in the United States. So these aren't going to be uh, substituting one for the other. Um, I think that so medical masks for a short period were in short supply. I think this concern was always kind of overblown about surgical masks because there was quite a lot of production capacity and it was the kind mm -hmm. of thing where you know, you can ramp up production capacity in a week or two for surgical masks and make enough for everyone in everyone in the country to be wearing masks and really pretty soon everyone in the world to be wearing masks. So it's like, um, I, I never thought that that was really like, other than the very, very short term for like a few days, like a serious concern, like it struck me as saying, look, if we just mandated everyone wear surgical masks, pretty soon we'd have enough surgical masks for everyone in a, in a matter of days or weeks. So this is not like, a long-term concern that we're not going to have these masks for medical personnel. The case of like N95 masks was a little bit, uh, a little bit trickier, but, um, but yeah, at the time that was certainly a major concern on the part of the public health community that, you know, if you told the general public to wear masks, that medical personnel wouldn't be able to. So let's come back to the policy side of this. Um, with a your study came out. So where do we find the published research from the Bangladesh study, by the way? I want to make yeah, sure people can find that. Science. Okay. 
Right. And and that was out at the end of last year? or, or uh, Yes. I think the online version was published in December. Um, I can send a link now. Right. Because I know listeners and viewers will want to actually read that. They can get a hold of it. Um, so what was the... What has been the response to that among policymakers? I mean, let's say in in Bangladesh, do you have an opportunity yeah. to sit down with policymakers there and actually, and of course, I'd put my policymaker yeah. face on for a second, and my first question would probably be, yeah. okay, that's nice, um, professor, and how much is that going to cost us to do this yeah. intervention so, at scale? Part of our study was trying to assess that, and actually, they did do it at much greater scale in Bangladesh. So this organization called Bra. Um, basically scaled up to thousands of villages in Bangladesh. It's something we're actually still working on and analyzing a number of follow-up studies, which is basically, I mean, there's always this problem. Um, in So it's a general issue in, in development economics, which is that researchers go and we do these randomized experiments. And, you know, we have a lot of oversight of the different elements. Like, it's like I'm meeting every week with this team of people to make sure that the implementation goes well and to try to figure out how to solve the various problems that arise. Right. So, and, and the other researchers, my, my colleagues and everyone are doing the same. So then you try to scale it up. And of course, the question becomes, well, is the quality of the implementation going to be the same? Will the same number of resources be spent per person? Um, so this has actually been scaled up in a number of places in Bangladesh and before, um, uh, in Pakistan, in uh, India, um, and uh, in Sierra Leone, and s- several other countries around the world, in Mali. Um, and the bottom line has been, you know, the, we have not seen the same magnitude of the increase in mask use that we saw in Bangladesh. There's some places where we think it's nonetheless been pretty cost-effective. So, for example, we think the implementation of Lahore uh, which was an urban environment, so somewhat different from the rural villages we were initially working with, but that that was pretty cost effective at increasing mask use and worked well. My general takeaway from this is that it's really very much about having like the managerial capacity. Like I think in Lahore, um, there's another researcher, Maha Rehman, who we're working with on a number of other projects, who's just really, really good. And, you know, she saw the initial study and sort of spearheaded the implementation in Lahore. And so things went really well because, you know, she really paid careful attention to all these details and was making sure things went well. And, you know, in, in India, in some places, we had another researcher like uh, Gautam Patel, who was equally the same sort of thing happened. And, and like, so some of the implementation went well. And sometimes it was like, you know, an organization where someone in the government was like, hey, you guys should do this. They're like, okay. But it's like, you know, have the buy-in of like a couple of individuals who really, really are willing, willing to work super hard to get it to work, and then it doesn't. So I think that's a very interesting phenomenon in general when we try to understand how to scale policies that have basically been like piloted in randomized experiments, which is, you know, to what degree is the success dependent on managerial capacity? Can you sort of design things so that it becomes less dependent in that way? Or alternatively, are there better ways of you know, measuring and managerial capacity and incentivizing the people to implement it well. And we certainly have not solved that problem. So among the many ways that I could see that this is applicable to the United States case, I mean, one just has is sort of the fundamental question that is still being asked. I'm not sure it's always asked in good faith, but um, is do, do masks actually work? Should yeah. we have people wearing masks because 
It's just something a, 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 a public health official told us to do, but it's just some sort of hygiene theater, and we should not take. I'm playing a role here when I say yeah. that. Yeah. Um, that's one, and I think the other is about whether or not should be we should have mandates, uh, and, or whether or not there should be uh, a different approach uh, to having people wear masks. And, and so yeah. your study actually is sort of relevant to both of those. Yeah. So I'm curious how you plug this in now to the odd world that is USA you know, yeah. COVID mask wearing. Yeah. So first of all, let me say that during our study in Bangladesh, there was a mask mandate the entire time of the study that had been in place for months. Now, in Bangladesh, they have less sort of institutional capacity to enforce them. So like in the United States, if we mandate mask wearing in a post office, for example, if someone comes in and they're not wearing a mask, well, it's like, you know, you can call the police, you can kick them out, there's things like that you can do that aren't really feasible in Bangladesh. So I think, first of all, that just... Mass mandates are, in principle, more enforceable here. Um, I, I see sort of the main takeaway from our study, though, as being this point about, so we actually uh, use an acronym to summarize our intervention, which is NORM, which who knows what it stands. It's like uh, <laughs> no-cost mass, offering information, re, uh, uh, reinforcement, and the M is for the modeling, like role modeling. Um, anyway. It's not a great acronym, but why do we call it norm? Because the idea of the intervention was to try to create a social norm, basically, to create a setting where people not only are told that they're supposed to wear a mask, but they know that other people kind of expect them to. So it's like everyone has been given this messaging concurrently, and they know that if they go outside and they're not wearing a mask, other people might judge them, right? So it's, of course, the political environment and everything is going to shape whether norms can be created in this way. One thing that I think is sort of generalizable from our study, and I think probably applies, you know, whether it's a red state or blue state or whatever, is if someone just politely asks you to do something, most people actually will do it. Like, of course, there are some people who are going to pick a fight about it, but it's like if you walk into a restaurant or you walk into, you know, a mall and someone's like, hey, can you please put on a mask while you're here, right? Or there's someone and like, here's a mask, please put this on. Most people will do that, right? Most people aren't going to be like, you know, F you, get out of my face, I'm going to do what I want, blah, blah, blah. So it's like, if you do things like that, if you basically say like, you know, we're a barbershop, we're going to tell people to part a mask when they come in, and that will probably lead a lot more people to wear masks. Now, your question was also, there were two elements to your question. One is, how do you get people to wear masks? And the second one is, when is it worthwhile? And I think the benefits of mask wearing vary a lot from place to place and setting to setting for a variety of reasons. So first reason um, that the benefits of mask wearing vary is just we have evidence now about like in what types of locations is COVID most likely to be transmitted. Right. So, you know, if you're in a park, you know, I think we didn't really know well in March of 2020, but now we have a lot of evidence that most of the you know, transmission seems to occur in indoor areas and poorly ventilated areas. So, you know, if you're in an indoor poorly ventilated area, the value of wearing a mask is probably a lot higher than if you're walking around in a park. That's the first one. Second point is it varies from place to place. So if you're in a location where many, many people are currently becoming infected with COVID, the value of wearing a mask is higher than if the current rate of cases is very low. If you're in a location where fewer people are vaccinated, so more people are dying, the value of wearing a mask is considerably higher than if you're in a place where almost everyone has boosters 
Now, that isn't saying that in places where everyone is vaccinated, do we not need masks at all? Well, you know, it depends. Like there's things we've learned a lot from Omicron. We know that there's a lot of spread of Omicron, even in places where people are vaccinated. If you had universal vaccination, I think you would have um, a lot lower deaths. You would probably still see a lot of Omicron cases. And then the question becomes, well, what's the cost benefits? Is it worth uh, still wearing a mask in order to prevent those cases, even if they don't result in deaths? And the answer is maybe. Uh, there's some uncertainty about like long COVID and things like that. So it's actually a tricky calculation to do that has to be done on a case by case basis. But I think I've done a bunch of these calculations and what these calculations seem to suggest is if there are places where lots of people are dying of COVID, usually because vaccination rates are far from perfect, then the case for mask wearing, especially in indoor crowded areas is extremely strong. Masks are extraordinarily valuable in those cases. If you're in a location where nearly everyone is vaccinated and you're thinking, well, you know, should we all be wearing masks when we go to the barber or whatever? You know, it's debatable. I think it's probably a case, especially if you're going to a public area with a lot of people. I think probably it does still pass a cost benefit test. Like, we should talk about what are the costs of mask wearing. Right. Well, it's a little uncomfortable. That's a cost. Um, obviously, like discomfort is not as bad as death, but the problem is if, you know, if you're in a world where one in 200,000 people are dying of COVID and everyone has to wear a mask to prevent it, well, then it becomes trickier because there's lots of things where there's lots of other things where we could, if, 200,000 people all paid $20, we could prevent a lot of deaths. So the, the calculus of these kinds of things becomes tricky in those cases. But like, that's not the situation in cases where, you know, in places where not a lot of people are vaccinated, where there's a lot of deaths. Like in the United States, on average, we're still seeing a huge number of deaths every day. Right. So the right. average place in the United States still, I think, has very, very high value from indoor mask wearing. Um, I think there's, some places where it's more borderline, but it probably still passed the cost benefit test. And um, yeah, we could talk separately about schools, where I know that's a that's a hot yeah. Point. And I, I want to get to that, but I just to linger here for a second because the um, the the average case in the U.S. is something that I guess maybe still held until the summer of 2020, but at that point it got sucked up into the politics and um, has never gotten away from that. So you have this crazy bifurcation where the the social norm. I'm going to stay in my my lane here, but I'm going to just. Yeah put this out there, the social norm of vaccination ties very closely with other kinds of social norms towards um, personal and community protection in, let's say, Massachusetts or New York or Connecticut or California or Oregon. Um, And that is not maybe the case in Texas or Florida. And so then policymakers reacting or provoking, however we want to think about it, in the relationship with their voters say, not only will not force you to get vaccinated, but we will not force you to wear a mask. And indeed, we will put policies in place that will prohibit public facilities from forcing you to wear a mask. So you get this this quite different, um, you know, experience there. And that's where I think another implication of your study to me is hugely important for, let's say, people who, who do run public facilities in Texas or Florida or, or wherever, yeah. where the policymakers are against that, but then they could, they still have other tools at their disposal yep. to try to create social norms without yeah. breaking the law. Right. 
So it's the kind of thing I totally agree with you, and you're absolutely right. The value of mask wearing is highest in these conservative places where you know Jewish people are vaccinated. So you know if you're a if you are a pastor at a church in a place where you know people are gathering indoors every Sunday, you know, and a lot of them aren't vaccinated, that's a place where if you you know put someone at the door as people walk in and say, oh, please put on a mask during this service, it's actually probably going to have a big and beneficial impact in preventing deaths, right? So our initial calculation at the time of the op-ed was that if 600 people wear a mask per year, so basically like the typical church congregation size, if they all wear a mask per year, it would probably prevent one of them from dying. Now, that certainly changes over time. The death rate, you know, if you that was in August 2020, the death rate is a little lower today, so it might be 2,500 people you need to wear a mask per year to prevent one of them from dying. But it's like you would have really serious public health benefits of doing that. It's the kind of thing where, of course, you know, some people will, if, if you know, you're a church in Texas and you do this, some be, a lot of people will be like, what are you, crazy? Why? And so I wouldn't recommend saying to people, oh, here's a mask. If you don't put this on, we're going to physically fight with you. <laughs> you know, you basically say, hey, like, we're asking people to please wear masks. If you're not willing to, then it is what it is. And, you know, like, depending on the setting, of course, you you have to weigh the benefits of enforcement against the costs of creating a scene and stuff. So in a lot of places, it might just make sense to say, oh, if you're willing to, please put on a mask. And some people will. And that would generally be beneficial for public health in these places where a lot of people aren't vaccinated. Well, let's talk about schools. And I'm sure you're asked about this a lot. Um, but, you know, here we have the quintessential indoor environment, often poorly ventilated. Yeah. Um, setting aside, you know, what we may or may not know still about um, transmission rates among people in certain age groups. Uh, schools are places with people. I mean, we have students at a certain age, but we've got teachers and we've got staff and personnel and many different types of folks. So here's a place, particularly, again, um, where the population might not be, uh, the vaccination rate might be relatively low compared to the yeah. general population, even in a highly vaccinated state, like, you know, in the Northeast. So with that as a preamble, your advice on mask wearing in schools at this yeah. point, based on what okay. you know? So the first thing I would say is, it's actually an incredibly hard question. There's a lot of uncertainty about a number of factors. My first, let me just summarize where I land, and then let me say why I land there. Yeah. Where I would land is like, Look, in places where a lot of people are dying of COVID, where there remains a high mortality rate, I think it is one among several policies that are potentially effective in reducing that mortality rate. Okay. In places where very few people are dying of COVID, like I think there's only so many deaths you can prevent and there might be other costs. Like I think so to spell out things a little bit more, I think there's actually considerable uncertainty about what the costs are like there's sort of the the discomfort cost and you know it is what it is it's like i'd certainly prefer as i sit around and work all day not to have to wear a mask it's like how big is that discomfort cost well you know is it 30 dollars a day and whatever it, it's hard to know and we could try to measure that that's one option there's also the potential costs in like communication and learning which i think are really uncertain and it's uncertain how they vary with ages could be that you know it, it can be a little bit harder to understand someone if there were if you have the teacher wear a mask, it's hard to understand them. And so, is that going to impact learning? I, I think we actually don't have great evidence. We're actually in the stages of designing a trial to try to 
to try to assess some of these questions. On the other hand, so what are the benefits? Well, I, I think the biggest benefits actually come from preventing like secondary infections. What I mean by that is we know that COVID mortality, even with Omicron, is much lower in uh, at people at younger ages. So if all you were doing, if there were no sort of secondary infections, in other words, if all you were doing were trying to keep children healthier, I think the calculation is pretty borderline. Because I, I think that in terms of the number of, if you think about the number of serious illnesses among children and you think about the number of people who have to wear a mask, it, you know, it can come out either way, depending on the location. It's not that I would be adamantly against it. It's something where I'd be like, I really don't know, based on just the risk to children. Now, I think the reason that I would recommend it in places where a lot of people are dying is because, of course, children get infected and then they go home and they transmit it to their families and other people who are at much more serious risk of dying as a result of contracting COVID. And, you know, I think the evidence now suggests that, like our best guess based on the existing evidence, is that in the place where a lot of people are dying of COVID, if you have mass mandates, fewer people will probably die of COVID because you'll be preventing those, you'll be preventing spread, you'll be preventing people from becoming infected. Um, there's kind of a, a, an interesting related point here um, having to do with, so an issue that arises with Omicron that didn't arise with previous variants is that it spreads, um, because it's spread so quickly and it, it's it's so infectious, there's this question of, well, why should people wear masks? Won't everyone just become infected anyway? Right. Um, and I think there's sort of two uh, things to keep in mind here. Like one is even just delaying infections is valuable because more people get vaccinated. But putting that aside, I think there's also an important question that we don't entirely understand the mechanism through which masks work, that there's two possibilities that are consistent with our existing study. One possibility is that masks prevent infections from occurring. A second possibility is that they make infections less severe conditional on occurring. Because if I'm wearing a mask and I'm infected, and then I infect you, it might be that the viral load that's transmitted to you is lower, and so you have a less severe infection. Now, if that's what's going on, then this point about Omicron wouldn't really apply, because you'd be saying, well, even if everyone gets infected, ultimately, masks are reducing the severity of the infection and right. resulting symptoms and deaths. I, I actually think that's just a scientific uncertainty. We don't know which of those is really going on, So, but there's at least a, a possibility that even if everyone was going to become infected anyway, um, that, that there would be some value from reducing the spare. So my bottom line in the school question is, in the places where a lot of people are dying or in places where uh, cases are increasing dramatically, I think the case for masks in schools is pretty strong. In other places, I think it's a very tricky question. There's really considerable uncertainty about, about a range of factors. Just to build on that for one second, um, since you raised the, the problem of understanding specifically uh, the mechanism by which masks are reducing infection. And I'm, I'm glad you pointed to, you know, that this is still a lot of research to be done on this, obviously. Yeah. But but meanwhile, out there in the world, there's a sort of uh, enormous variety of variability in materials and in designs. It seems that there's, you know, it took a while in the United yeah. States to settle. I'm in South Korea where um, those issues were settled long ago. Yeah. Um, because of, you know, mask wearing to reduce exposure to dust and pollution and also MERS. And there's other things in the background for South Korea that normalize mask wearing and and a few different types. Um, but in the United States, people wearing everything from, you know, 
neck gaiters and, uh, uh, you know, painter's masks to, you know, good high quality, you know, N95 masks. Yeah. Does this bother you to see this variability out there? I mean, even when public health officials say, this is the thing you should do, we see people wearing face shields. I mean, it's a pretty wild display out there on the street when you look at the variability. Okay, so so two thoughts on this. First, let's just talk about the evidence, which is that basically what we've known for a long time is we have laboratory tests where people cough into masks and we see how many particles get through, basically. And we know that some masks and 95 masks and surgical masks relative to cloth masks, some masks just have higher filtration efficiency. Some masks are just better at blocking viral particles. So, of course, we would expect everything else on equal, given our understanding of the mechanism, that they would be more effective. Um in our study, I would say we find somewhat stronger evidence for surgical masks than cloth masks. It's not that we actually find, we don't find surgical definitely work better than cloth masks, but I would say the evidence is more robust and definitive for surgical masks than for cloth masks. But that, uh, the reason I think that this suggests higher quality masks should be worn is because, you know, we have this strong prior based on the evidence from the laboratory studies that these higher quality masks just have better filtration efficiency based on studies in hospitals as well. So the bottom line there is the evidence certainly seems to suggest that if you can, you should be wearing a higher quality mask. Why has that not happened? I think there's this broad question about science communication. First thing to say is science communication is difficult. People who have confident views about how to communicate science, probably they're overconfident, like it's hard to do. Second thing to say is that uh, uh, my inclination based on what I've seen in the US from the public health authorities is that it would be better if they were more direct. And in other words, it would be better if they just said what they think given the existing evidence rather than try to like couch things in really simplistic aphorisms. So instead of being like, oh, if we tell people that N95 masks are better than cloth masks, they'll think we mean cloth masks don't work and no one should ever wear a mask or that. Just say what you think the evidence suggests and, you know, and let's try to get that out there. And I think that tends to work better than trying to kind of, you know, say something that you know is wrong, but because it's sort of like simpler and easier to convey. But again, even that view I'm tentatively offering, I'm not sure if I'm right about that. So almost out of time in my COVID calls discussion today with the economist Jason Abeluk, I'm having a really fascinating discussion about mask wearing. And I, I guess um, I, let me sneak in a sort of a half question here about the uh, um, sort of environmental impact. There's been some interesting uh, research about the environmental impact of COVID generally with, you know, emissions reductions and various things early on in the pandemic. And as we go further into the pandemic, there's been some research about, um, you know, just the environmental load of in the waste stream of plastics and masks. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So we actually did a calculation in our paper. I think it's just not an important consequence of mask wearing. I think that, you know, things have environmental costs. Economists try to quantify those environmental costs because some environmental costs are extremely important in first order, and some of them are just not. And when we add up the dollar equivalent value of the environmental costs of mass, it's like a fraction of the already low costs of mass. So I, I think this is just not a serious concern relative to the potential benefits and the other potential costs of, of mass growing. But it's not something we could have known that a priori. You have to do a calculation and try to quantify how important it is, and it's just not first order. And what's the time horizon now as we, as we close up our conversation? Are you, I mean, are we going to be wearing masks? Would you be recommending people be wearing masks? Do you think this would continue to be a social practice for a long time, even after the COVID uh, case and death rates come way down? I mean, as you said earlier, I mean, 
influenza. I mean, there's lots of reasons people could continue to wear masks that could go beyond slowing COVID spread. I think what we should definitely do, I think what there is now clear evidence for is that people with symptomatic respiratory diseases should be wearing masks. So in other words, if you're coughing and sneezing and you're like, well, I'm going to go into work anyway, okay, but you should wear a mask so you don't infect your coworkers. Now, what's unique about COVID is that we know that there's asymptomatic transmission. And so if we know that there's a COVID wave specifically, that says everyone should wear a mask and not just the people who are showing symptoms. So, you know, I think the future course of COVID, I expect, as you said, that Hopefully, cases and deaths will continue to decline, although there's certainly the possibility of further mutations, and we just don't know um, what exactly the future will hold. But if cases and deaths continue to decline, then I would say the case for universal mask wearing would become weaker, but the case for symptomatic mask wearing to combat influenza and other conditions, I think, is uh, very strong. So I just want to remind everyone that you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can usually catch COVID calls live at 6 p.m. Eastern time, most days of the week. And I want to thank my guest today, Professor Jason Avaluk, uh, who's a co-author of this study, which you can find in the journal Science, Impact of Community Masking on COVID-19, a cluster randomized trial in Bangladesh. And you can also read sort of the high-level summary of that in an op-ed in the New York Times, which appeared in September of last year. Jason, it's been a real education for me today. This is like perfect kind of COVID call for me. I come in knowing some things and you really help clarify the key issues for me. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. Stay healthy, everyone. And we'll see you next time on COVID Calls.